In case you weren't here last Sunday, you may be looking going, you're not Pastor Jay, and that is correct, I am not. Pastor Jay and his family have had the opportunity to go on a much-needed holiday, and we pray that they are resting and enjoying their time. So in the meantime, you have me this Sunday, and Lord willing, next Sunday. And someone said, so what are you speaking on, Stephen? And I said, I'm speaking on Joshua. Because that's where we're at. And you may be saying, oh, great, next week in Joshua. Or maybe you're going, oh, really? Joshua again. And if you're feeling that, I I can appreciate it. The last time we were together last week in Joshua, it was hard. We dealt with the passage in Joshua chapter 6 where we talked about the conquest of Jericho. And that's a hard passage. If you read that passage, if you heard Pastor Jay speak on it, and it's like, this is hurting my brain. That's good. If you heard the passage and you went, ah, I got no problem with that at all. You know, they were wicked. God smited them. Let's roll on. Be very careful. Because that is not also not a good place to be. Because you see, sometimes when we come across passages in Scripture that are hard, where we see the, the magnitude of God's justice being poured out on humankind, there is that tendency in us to slip to the all-justice side and say, yet, that is what they deserve. It's like the man who went into jury duty, was called to jury duty, and he plunked down in the seat, and uh, the lawyers were going to check this guy out to see if he was suitable to be a juror, and they walked up and said, sir, what is your thought about the justice system? And he said, well, son, to me, it's a whole lot of work for nothing. My view is just hang them all and let the good Lord sort it out on the other end. (laughs) Needless to say, he was excused. From jury duty. But when we look at God's justice, sometimes in our human fallen condition, we can go to one side where we go, how can God do this? How can he exercise judgment at all that is hard, that is cruel, and we can't grasp it? Or we swing to the other side where we go, and the wicked shall perish. Yet. Before we look to Joshua, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. Ezekiel, chapter 33. It's always important, whenever we look at the Word of God in any situation, but particularly when we come to passages which are challenging, passages that we have to work through, that we have to wrestle with, and... This is a book intended to be wrestled with. It is not a book to read through and go, la, 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 yes, no problem at all. You should be wrestling with it. If you look in the Word of God and you haven't hit things that you have to wrestle with, I don't know where you're reading. You're reading Psalm 23 over and over and over again, which is awesome because it's a psalm for healing and comfort, but go to the other places too. Reading in Ezekiel chapter 33, starting at verse 10. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, 
Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? In this passage, and it goes on, God is talking about about human justice and human righteousness and human wickedness. But in this passage, one of the ideas that comes through, and it comes through repeatedly in this book, is God speaking against the notion that God dispenses justice without feeling. Last week, we read about the destruction of Jericho when God said that Jericho would be utterly destroyed and every living thing within it. If in your mind you picture a malevolent God sitting on a throne going, and now you will die, slamming the gavel down, you do not have the picture of the God found in the Word of God. Because He grieves for His creation. In His holiness, He must exact justice because that is His character and He cannot go against it, but in His mercy, He grieves. He says to the people, thus says, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So while Jericho fell, the God of the universe grieved for them. The God of the universe would have desired that every single person in Jericho was a Rahab. That every single person in Jericho recognized the God who was with the children of Israel and cried out to them. You say, Stephen, how can you say that? I can say that this way. You remember another story, a little book about a guy and a big fish? He was called Jonah. He was a prophet. He was sent to a city that was the capital of what was considered one of the most wicked empires in the ancient world. To this day, the Assyrians are still considered among the most violent in their practices in the ancient world. They celebrated them. They carved huge stone murals praising their wickedness. And so God sends a prophet to see them, a prophet named Jonah. And he says, I want you to tell them that I'm going to bring my judgment upon them because I have seen their ways. And Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go. And uh, unfortunately, often in Sunday school, we teach it like this. Jonah doesn't want to go because he's scared. Just like so many of us don't want to share our faith because we're afraid. That is not at all the reason why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because, and he tells us in the book of Nineveh, because he knew the character of God. He said, I know, God, that if I went to the people of Nineveh and I told them that you were going to bring judgment upon them because of their wickedness and they repented, you would spare them. And God, I wanted them to die. 
because they have been our enemies. They have been a constant threat to our people. Their wickedness has impacted us, and I wanted them to die, but you would forgive them if they repented. And God has a conversation with Jonah. I'm supposed to be in Joshua, so I'm not going to go any further in Jonah, but I would like you to read it. Open up that little book of Jonah and read it not now, later. Not now, later. And read God's conversation, the Lord of the universe's conversation with Jonah, his prophet, about this city, because the city does repent. The entire city in sackcloth and ashes from the king down to the lowest person cries out to God and God shows them mercy. And Jonah is upset because that's what he knew would happen. And God says, but look at all these people, Jonah. Shouldn't I care about them? You know, there's over 20,000 children there, preschool age and under. Shouldn't I care about them? So when you read through Joshua, make sure that your image of God comes from the entire word of God, not from that moment that you're wrestling with in Joshua chapter 6. And now as we move into Joshua chapter 7, first let's pray. Father, as we look into your word now, we need you in it. We need your Holy Spirit to give us clarity as we wrestle with these things. Lord, we need you to be moving in the words that are spoken. Let them be your words and not mine. Lord, we need you to help us grasp things that are beyond ourselves, to help us understand your ways that are so far removed from our natural ways of thinking. And Lord, we need you to change us for your glory in Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're in Joshua chapter 7. They've just had their victory over Jericho. God, through his miraculous power, has broken down the walls of Jericho. They've gone and they've captured and conquered and destroyed the city of Jericho. And everything should be on a high note. The last verse we read in Joshua chapter 6 was, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. There's every pastor's desire. Every pastor would like to have that written about them. And the Lord was with pastor so-and-so, and his fame was in all the land. Then we roll into chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebda, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, 
and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Thirubim and struck at them in the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So, yes, things are not going well. Right after the victory of Jericho, we have two things we're told. Number one is that the people have sinned. That someone has gone into Jericho and taken from the treasures of Jericho, which God said were to be solely an offering for him and him alone, and has taken this treasure and hid it away. So there's sin among the children of Israel. And often we see this in our own lives. That even after we experience something great with God, something amazing, we see His power at work and we're celebrating that, our sin nature will use that opportunity to let a little bit of sin slip in. Maybe it's that weakness. Maybe it's that temptation. And we're exalting on this side. We're falling on that side. So there's sin in the picture. But then we come to the attack on the city. The city of Ai is the next city on the general travel route into Canaan. It's a much smaller city than Jericho. It's a small, more or less considered a fortress outpost. It is a walled city, but a very small population. It's generally a guarding spot and a part for negotiating trade. So Joshua sends his men and says, go check it out. They go and check it out, reconnoiter it, come back and say, look, Joshua, it's like this. It's like this now. It's like this. We don't, we don't have to bring up all the people. Don't, don't get them all up and everything to march up there, you know. Just, just give us a few thousand. We'll go up, you know. We'll clean it up. And let the other people have a rest. And so they get this group of guys, probably took volunteers. They got those guys who are really into this sort of thing. And they go up to the city and they get hammered. And come running back, run away, run away, run away, run away, run away all the way home. And the children of Israel are going, what just happened? This was supposed to be the easy victory. We had the victory we weren't sure about, and God gave us that one. Now this was the easy victory. We had our hands all over this. But one of the things you notice as you look at the narrative that there is something missing in the whole description until we come to verse 6. What is missing is there is no reference to the consultation of God at all. We see Joshua sent out spies. The spies came back to Joshua. They gave the report. 
the city's easy, no problem, small group of guys, we'll take it. Joshua apparently goes, thumbs up, here's the group of guys, off you go. They go and attack the city, and they get hammered. And then they come back, run away, run away, run away. The people are like, oh, no, what's going to be the end of us if we can't even beat this little city? And Joshua at that point goes, God, what's up? One of the dangers that we also experience in our Christian lives is that often after God has given us great victory or success is we forget almost immediately where the success came from and we take it upon ourselves. Joshua and the children of Israel did not defeat Jericho. They walked around it and God wiped the city out. It didn't take a huge amount of military prowess. But now suddenly they're of the ability to make assessments. Oh, we've assessed this city. It'll only take this many men. Let's get it together. Let's go and do it. And they remove God from the equation. One of the greatest dangers we have as believers is that we forget that everything that we accomplish, everything that happens in us and through us that brings about good in this world is brought about through the power and direction of God. As soon as I think that, God, it's okay, I've got this, the next cry will be, run away, run away, run away. We are intended to be dependent on God. Joshua knew that God was with him, that Joshua knew that God had made promises and covenants to him. And if Joshua had gone to the Lord and said, the Lord Here we are, we're coming to the next city. What would you have us do? The first thing the Lord would have said to him is, Joshua, before you do anything, we've got an issue at home. We need to deal with that first. Because I am not going to give you victory there until we deal with this at home. But Joshua never saw there was an issue at home because he never asked. He took it upon himself. He and his men, they made their plan. They went out and they accomplished defeat. And then the natural reaction that we have, I have, is to then go, God, what are you doing? I thought you made us promises. It would have been better if we just stayed back there and never stepped out. If you are familiar at all with the journey of the children of Israel, that is the most common refrain that comes up every time Something doesn't go the way you expect. Oh, I wish we'd stayed back in Egypt where we had onions to eat and you were slaves. I wish we had stayed in the wilderness where you ate manna and walked around in the desert. Oh, I wish we'd stayed back on the other side of the Jordan, totally separated from the beauties and the benefits of the promised land. That becomes our thing. As soon as We meet hardship because we haven't been talking to God. Our next thing is like, oh, God, you're obviously not with us. I wish I was back here. How many times have we experienced that in our Christian life? I've sat with people who have made that statement, young believers who said, you know, it was easier when I wasn't a believer. Because then I didn't have to live up to anything or did whatever I wanted. Now there's expectations and there's things and, 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 you know, I've, It was easier back there. So Joshua 
and the elders of Israel are basically telling God, God, you let us down. You did. You let us down. And how is that going to look? What do you think the Amorites are going to say? Oh, their God was so great, but look, now they got defeated. So what about your great name now, God? And the Lord said to Joshua, someone once said to me, Stephen, I wish that God would speak to me verbally the way he does in the Old Testament at times to individuals. And I said, well, that there are times where that would be really awesome, but there are times where I think that would be very scary. Because there are times when God speaks audibly to people in the Old Testament, it's usually sort of along the line of smarten up. Stand up. Put your belt on, because I'm going to start asking you questions, and you are going to start giving me answers. In this case, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Here they are laying on their faces, dust on their heads. Oh, I wish we were back across the river. Oh, woe is me. And God is like, get up. And you know what? I think they got up. And God says, why have you fallen on your face. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. Do you see, God told the children of Israel and he reiterated his covenant with them when they had their time of circumcision, when they entered into the land and God said to them, when, as you follow my statutes, I will be with you. As long as you walk in my ways, you will have victory over all your enemies. So if you just didn't have victory over an enemy just now, what does that mean? Joshua, you should have immediately known God did not give us victory. We are not following his statutes. God did not give us success. We have stepped out of the covenant because God does not forsake his covenant. So if the covenant has been broken, it's been broken on our side. But Joshua doesn't ask that question of God. The leaders don't ask that question. They accuse God. And now God is helping them understand. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So God says, this is the problem. 
I told you as a nation when you covenanted with me that you are to obey my statutes. And I told you when I was giving you Jericho to give you victory over that city, that that city and everything in it would be a burnt offering for me. Everything that was not burned of the valuables that were not burned would be taken and put in the Lord's treasury to bring honor to the Lord because they would become sacred to me. I explained that to you days before we covenanted together. And this is an important thing you need to understand about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was not a nation based on ethnicity, but based on covenant. That you were not part of the nation of Israel because of your gene pool, but because of your commitment to the covenant that God made with the nation. That is why when God brought them into the land, the first thing he did is he reestablished the covenant because they each committed to the covenant. That's why when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, Egyptians came out with them and they became part of the children of Israel because they accepted the covenant of God. That's why Rahab, a Canaanite, could come into the community of Israel and become part of the children of Israel so that her descendants will become part of the line of Jesus Christ because she accepted the covenant. So you weren't there in Israel like, oh, well, you know, I was born here. You know, like I'm from, I'm, I'm, I'm a Gadite. I'm from the tribe of Gad. Therefore, hey, I'm part of the children of Israel. You are part of the children of Israel because you accepted the covenant of God. So God makes this announcement. I am going to find the person who has broken my law. Tell them. Tell the entire nation. This is what's going to happen. Consecrate yourselves. Cleanse yourself. Prepare. Because tomorrow I'm going to find the person who's committed this sin against me and against the nation. I'm going to tell you a little story. When I was about nine, my father, who was not working so much at the time, would do odd jobs for people, and he was a bricklayer and a stonemason. And at one point, he was building this beautiful fireplace for this family, and after they were finished, they had done it out of angel bricks, which are these beautiful bricks. They were like a light yellow pastel with these pink squirrels in them, and they had more brick than they needed for the fireplace, and the, the owners told my dad he could have them. And so he brought them home. And he was going to make a little ornamental wall in the backyard of the house that we rented. These stones were about two, two, a few were three feet long, about yay thick, beautiful bricks. And so my father stacked them up to make the ornamental wall where it was going to be. But he hadn't cemented them together or anything yet. He just stacked them there. And he said to us, angel brick are very fragile. They're long and narrow, and they will break if you bang them. So do not go near them. Do not go near them. You stay away from them. Yeah, that worked for a few days. And then one afternoon, we're out in the backyard, my older brother and a friend of his and myself. And my older brother, two years older than me, and 
taller and thin and more agile, he and his friend decided to make an obstacle course around the backyard. So they would run these laps around these obstacles, climbing over this, jumping over that, and then they'd come to the ornamental wall, which they jumped over like a hurdle. And I saw them doing this, so I said to my older brother, I said, hey, I want to play too. And they said, no, you can't because you're too small. Well, of course, you all know that you don't tell a smaller brother that he's too small. Because that means nothing. So I said, no, no, I can do it too. And my brother said, no, because see, I can jump over that ornamental wall without touching you because we're not allowed to touch it. But you cannot. So about the 10th lap of this, temptation being what it is, I had enough of this, so I slipped into line behind my elder brother where he didn't notice I was running behind him, ran up to the wall, and as also happened to me all through junior high school track and field, I jumped over the wall, and there's this foot called your trailing foot that apparently you need to lift up higher than... And my trailing foot caught the top of the ornamental wall and caused the ornamental wall to fall off. It was on a ledge like this. And then there was a cement path down there. And it caught the wall, and the wall tipped. And as I'm landing here and running, I hear this crashing sound. I did not turn around. <laughs> my older brother turned around and looked. And he said, you broke all of them. At that point, I turned around, and of these 14 or 15 of these big, I broke all of them. Every single one of them was broken, not just in half, but broke really well. And I can remember, the Lord has blessed me with a very good visual memory. I can close my eyes, and I can see them laying on the pavement even now. And my brother's only words of comfort with me were, Dad's going to kill you. <laughs> so I went into the house and my mother was preparing supper and I said to her, Mom, I broke all Dad's angel bricks. And my mother just stopped and went, Oh dear. <laughs> See, moms, that's not a comfort thing, just so you know. And she goes, well, you have a choice. You can either go and explain it to your father when he gets home, or you can wait for him to find you. So I went into the hallway. It was mid-afternoon. My father got home around supper time. And I stood in the hallway. We had a French glass door thing for the entryway, so you could see silhouettes you couldn't see. And I stood there and watched to see my father arrive at the door. Well, my mother says it was about 45 minutes. I think it was about six days. But as I stood there, and the image of every single broken stone, and my father's very clear, very emphatic, very there is no around this instruction of do not go near them and do not touch them. the immense gravity of the situation began to press down upon me. I never had a problem grasping original sin, even as a small child. And it began to crush down on me that my father will say that when he opened the door, 
I was a blubbering mess because I knew I had broken the rules. I had broken the stone. I had no excuse for it. It wasn't like, you know, a meteorite hit me and knocked me across the backyard. There was nothing like that. I had willingly done what I knew I should not do, and the result of it was I had broken the stones. My father opened the door, and I was blubbering away on my knees in front of him, which is a confusing thing when your father comes home from a hard day's work and you open the door and there's your blubbering son in the hallway. He's making no sense really at all at that moment. So, you, of course, you immediately look over his head to look for your wife who's going to give some sense to what's going on. And my mother just says, he's got to tell you. There's great help on that one. So, I explained to my dad what I had done. His demeanor changed, and he and I went for a walk out into the backyard where he looked at them and confirmed, in case I was unaware, that yes, indeed, I had broken all of them. And he asked the question, how do you manage to break all of them? You know, there's that small part, like, I guess that was sort of <laughs> success on my part. Um <laughs> And I remember that event so clearly because my father impressed upon me, first of all, his incredible displeasure. But he said, the fact that I came to him in repentance changed everything on how things were going to play out. That there would need to be things to deal with, but that I recognized my sin and went to him first would change justice. We didn't end up with an ornamental wall. So now think of this in the case of what is about to happen in Joshua chapter 7. God has just announced to Joshua, Joshua has just announced to the people, the Lord knows that someone in the camp of Israel has taken from the devoted things, the things that God said were to be devoted to him alone, has taken them and hidden them, and tomorrow he will gather us together and he will identify the individual. What is God doing in that proclamation? What God is doing in that proclamation is he is saying, I know your sin. Now what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And Achan, the son of Carmi, what he does about it is absolutely nothing. Whether he doubts that God has the ability to single him out, whether that treasure has such a hold on him that he's lost sight of the immensity of the holiness of God, Achan does nothing. He doesn't run to Joshua and say, it's me. He doesn't cry out to God and say, God, here it is. It was me. And I got caught in that moment and I saw them in the lust of the eyes. I just saw it and I, as soon as I saw it, I coveted it. When I coveted it, I wanted it. And then I took it and I had it in my possession. And then I had to hide it away because I knew I couldn't have it. But I wanted it. He doesn't do any of that. So the next day, early in the morning, Joshua 16... Verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. 
and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites were taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites man by man, and Zebda was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Judah said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered, Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. See, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. So now Achan is exposed. He's been found out. God has identified him. He's got nowhere to go. And there he stands. And we look at this and and part of our brain goes, what's going to happen to him? This week I was called for jury duty to the Supreme Court of Nova Scotia. And we went through the first part of the selection It was my first time ever going through jury selection. There were 600 of us that were called to get a jury of 12. And I was thinking, wow. Then as you go through the process, you realize a whole lot of people get bumped really quickly. Until we came to the part, there was only a small group of us left. And from us, they would select the 12. And at that point, the trial officially started. The defendant and his lawyers were there. The, The judge was in his position. And the the charges were read out the person was accused of and they were a long list of serious charges and then they turned to the defendant and said how do you plead for each of the charges and the defendant pleaded not guilty and the judge said at this point the trial has begun and then he turned to us who remained as as potential jurors and he said in a few moments 12 of you will be selected to be the jury for this trial you will become the judge of your peers. You will weigh the evidence. You will wrestle with it under the directions of the court. And in the end, it is your responsibility to dispense justice for your community and for your peers. And as I sat there and I looked at the judge sitting in his robes and the the flags of our nation and province and the court and saw the, the lawyers in their formal attire and the defendant sitting in his seat and I was sitting in the jury box at the time because I was the first lot that was being brought up for the final interview and all of a sudden the thought began to weigh on me about the weight of justice. Because you see, this individual who was sitting there had just pleaded not guilty. If he should be found guilty through the process of the trial, Justice will be dispensed differently then than it would have been on that morning when he was given the opportunity to plead guilty if he was. 
if he had pleaded guilty to those charges, that would have been taken into consideration in the dispensation of justice. But if he is found guilty after declaring his innocence, the weight of justice will be so much greater upon him. I discovered that saying that your occupation is pastor of discipleship at a Baptist church apparently isn't popular. Um, so I, I got excused. So it gave me more time to prepare the sermon than being on the jury. But um, it, it, it was interesting because I'm sitting there reading Joshua 7 as we're waiting for uh, the next part of the selection to happen. I'm thinking, okay, God, obviously you're pulling something together here as I'm sitting in a law court. So we come to this point in 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, and they laid them before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel took with them Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. But the Lord, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Injustice is the sense. And again, if, if you read that and it just sort of glazes, you just slide right past it, then I'm concerned for the softness of your heart. Because the Lord God did not desire that. That justice needed to be carried out. Now, some people, when they read the passage, one of the things, they go, okay, well, I can see Achan. Achan committed the crime. He had covenanted with the Lord just recently, pledged that he would follow the Lord's statutes. His, the Lord's statutes were clear, and he took this. And when God declared that he was going to bring this person out, he didn't call out and repent. He waited until he was discovered. So he deserves it. But what about the rest of them? Again, it's always important to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 24, as God is giving his declarations for the children of Israel, he makes an important statement that helps us in our understanding of what's happening in this passage. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16 as God is going through his rules and statutes, he makes this statement, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So when we read in Joshua that Achan and his sons and his daughters were put to death, we go, well, how is that? We have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. That if God has said that I don't take the lives of children because of their father's sin in the nation of Israel, 
then based on that declaration of the Lord, we assume that his sons and daughters were complicit in what he did. Whether they helped him hide it or they knew it was there and said nothing in disobedience to the Lord, that they were complicit in the act. But then we say, well, what about, what about the animal? Okay, the donkey did not dig the hole. It's important for us to grasp, and and many commentators have wrestled with this over the centuries, that one of the things that is clear is that when God dispenses justice, people do not benefit. So if God had taken Achan's life and his neighbors got to grab his tent and grab his animals and grab it, then they benefited from God's righteous judgment. When God declares his justice, you don't benefit from it. All of the nation grieves because of it, but nobody gets a benefit because someone has fallen and suffered the wrath of God. In justice, there is no personal benefit for others. So we look at this story and we go, so, love that Old Testament. Can we go back to the New Testament now, anytime, anytime now? But we need these stories because these stories help us understand the justice and the mercy of God. You read the story of Achan where God pours out his justice upon Achan because Achan does not repent. Achan disobeys God and the covenant with God. But you read that in context with Rahab who calls out to God and she is redeemed. You read that in accordance with the stories of those who come later of the stories of the Nineveh who cry out to God and God shows mercy to them. And we read them in context to what takes place on the cross of Jesus Christ. All we have sinned, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us deserve righteous judgment of God. And if we in this life in being led by the Holy Spirit, recognize our need and cry out to God, saying, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. What can I do to be saved like the Philippian jailer? And then we hear the gospel and say, there's nothing you can do but putting your trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you. You can be forgiven. And we experience mercy. But no, if you have not done that, there is a day coming. Scripture is clear where we will stand before God all great and small from all nations, tribes, and tongues who have not been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And then there's justice. And we try to soften that sometimes. We, we lose perspective of it, but there will be justice. Jesus said himself, there is a time coming where I will look at you and say, I never knew you. Depart from me. For Achan, his time of repentance passed and there was only justice. And justice was complete. There was no bargaining. When it comes to the point where God has reached his point of pouring out justice, just like the city of Jericho where we're told all the way back in Genesis in the first conversations that God has with Abraham about the land, he says, I'm not giving you the land yet because The wickedness of the people in the land hasn't reached its maximum yet. That God is dealing with the people in Canaan and their rebellion against him eventually reaches the point where God is going to carry out justice. 
But then when we see the justice of God and we look at, at the stories, we see Sodom and Gomorrah, God pours out his justice. But what do we see in that conversation when Abraham says, God, what if there's 50 righteous people in there? I, won't, I wouldn't destroy the city for 50, a city of thousands. What if there's 20? What if there's, what if there's 10? I wouldn't destroy them if there's 10 righteous people in the city. Well, there aren't 10 righteous people in this conglomeration of cities, but God still draws out some and shows his mercy. And we look at the people he draws out and went, really? They're kind of quirky too. But that's a picture of God's mercy reaching out. So as you wrestle with this passage this week, as you look at it in your small groups, as you discuss it, as you go, I really don't like it, look at it in the context of all of Scripture, that we have a holy God and a merciful God. As it says in Psalm 86 about justice and righteousness and love, kissing each other, meeting each other, that we can't understand the grace of God until we understand the justice of God. You can't understand your need for a Savior until you understand the magnitude of sin in the sight of God. You can't understand the heart of God until you know that he grieves for the wicked. That God grieved for Achan because it was not desire that God's desire that Achan experience justice, but that he turned from his ways and repent. But sometimes we don't. pray. Father, help us grasp these things. Soften our hearts so that we grieve for our neighbors, so that we're burdened for one another. Soften our hearts as your heart is softened that you declare that you do not desire to see the wicked perish, but that they turn. But Lord, you also tell us that you are not slack. You're long-suffering. But justice will be served, whether it's through what Christ accomplished on the cross or through our own unrepented sin, justice will be served. So Lord, move in us to grasp this more fully, to live it out, to share it. Lord, do this. For your glory in Jesus Christ.